If you have your uh, copy of the scriptures, uh, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 23. If not, you can follow along on the screen or in the bulletin. Um, As I thought about our passage this morning, uh, I thought about the prophet Isaiah. If you ever read the the prophet of Isaiah in the Old Testament, he was a prophet who lived hundreds of years before Jesus. And yet, despite that, he talked a lot about Jesus. He talked a lot about the Messiah who would come. And one of the things that he says about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53 is that when the Messiah comes, he will be numbered with the transgressors. Uh, Eugene Peterson picking up on this, translate that as, that's as that the Messiah will, he will embrace the company of the lowest, of the lowest. Uh, we would say he is willing to hang out with sinners. And of course, as you look at Jesus' life uh, in the Gospels, he did that very thing. Isaiah's words uh, became true. He spent his time with quote-unquote sinners, Uh, People who everyone else in their culture deemed to be flawed and deemed to be unworthy. Uh, These were the people that Jesus dined with. These were the people that he traveled around with. These were the people that he associated with. These were the people that he called friends as he walked the earth among us. And so as we come to our passage this morning, we see that even in Jesus' life, he hung out with sinners, but he was even willing to die among sinners as well. So this Lenten season, what we're going to do is we're going to look at all of the final words that Jesus spoke when he hung on the cross. And so this morning, we're going to look at the words that he shared with a sinner, the words he shared with a criminal who he was crucified alongside of, and those words are today you will be with me in paradise. So I'm going to be reading from Luke uh, chapter 23, verses 32 uh, through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds." But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lenten season, for the opportunity to uh, pause and think about uh, really the climax of the story of redemption. 
your crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. I pray that as we uh, think through this Lenten season, as we think through this passage before us this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would help us to see the gospel clearly, that you would draw us closer to you as we encounter you in your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage takes place in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke, like any good storyteller or any good film director, wants to set the stage of what he is describing. And that's what Luke does in this Gospel as he approaches the the crucifixion. He wants us to see all the players that are involved in this story. So he mentions lots of different people in this passage. Uh, He mentions soldiers uh, that were at the foot of the cross, and these soldiers were Roman. Uh, They were a reminder to everybody that lived in that culture that they were under the thumb of a foreign oppressor, that they were uh, occupied territory. And Luke tells us what the soldiers did at the foot of the cross. It says, the soldiers mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. So soldiers were at the foot of the cross. Luke describes also the people that were there or the crowd that had surrounded the cross. Public executions all throughout human history have always been very effective and useful in drawing crowds, and this crucifixion was really no different. No doubt some of the people that were there were followers of Jesus Christ. They had followed him in his public ministry, Uh, They had maybe eaten with him. They'd learned about his teaching, and so they were probably there. Uh, Jesus' opposition, no doubt, was there. These were the people that couldn't stand Jesus, that opposed him at every place that they could, and actually these were the ones that most likely drew the crowd up to uh, unite in its desire to crucify Jesus Christ. But no doubt there were just a lot of other people there that were just in the middle, Maybe they were indifferent about Jesus. They had just gathered for the show to watch someone be publicly executed. And so there was a large crowd there. But Luke also wants to see that the rulers were there as well. These were those that uh, really conspired to have Jesus crucified. And it tells us that the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And so Luke helps us to see the diversity of people there, the variety of people there, but all of these descriptions help us to see that this was no gentle or humane execution, that this was loud. It was cacophonous. There was mocking, jeering, scoffing. There was blood. There was brutality. There was the smell of death on a hill that was called the skull. And then Luke, what, that what Luke does is he moves our attention away from the crowd to those who were being executed beside Jesus, the, the transgressors that he was being counted among at his death. He helps us to see one criminal. He introduces us to one of these criminals and tells us in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these criminals that were crucified alongside of Jesus. 
We don't know what they did to deserve crucifixion or what sort of lives they had lived, whether they had family that they were leaving behind. We just don't know much about them. But we do know about this first criminal that he chose to join in with the crowd in his mocking and in his jeering. We don't know his heart. Maybe he was truly disappointed. Maybe he really did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but he couldn't square this idea of Jesus being the Messiah and yet at the same time being executed by Roman authorities. Maybe he had placed his hopes in Jesus, but those hopes had evaporated now that he sees a man who claimed to be the Messiah hanging on the cross. Or maybe in his dying moments, He just simply wanted to heap insults on Jesus, just like the rest of the crowd did. We're left to wonder, why on earth would you waste your final breath and your final words in railing against the Christ? We just simply don't know the answer to those questions. But what we do know is that there was another criminal who responded in a very different way. And what he does is he asks Jesus if he can be remembered. Can I be remembered by you? Now, this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And in a lot of Christian traditions, uh, you will see people take ashes and uh, put them on their foreheads. Uh, Sometimes it's in the sign of a cross, Uh, Sometimes it's just placed on the forehead, and there's symbolism behind this. Uh, The passage that really uh, inspires this is a a passage that is in Genesis chapter 3 that says this, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Real cheery thing to consider, right? Well, the scriptures remind us all throughout that, that the wise person, The person who's characterized by the wisdom of God is one who recognizes just how fragile their lives are. They recognize that the lives that we lead are short. In one passage where our lives are described like a mist that is there in the morning, that is here today and is gone tomorrow. Now, I don't know about you, but we don't often live like this. We don't always live according to this wisdom, and we live as if we are guaranteed tomorrow, as if each one of us is guaranteed a full life that lives into its 80s, 90s, maybe even its hundreds. But then life settles in, or the reality sets in that actually the lives that we live are very fragile. At times, they can feel very tenuous. We realize that nothing that we have is guaranteed to us, that all of this could be taken away from us in a moment's notice. And so when we come to terms with that wisdom, it has the effect of really sharpening our perspective on life, what really matters and what doesn't. For a lot of us, it makes us really concerned about what we might leave behind. It makes us wonder, how will we be remembered? How will our lives be remembered by others? When our physical bodies move on, how will those we leave behind remember us? What will people think on when they think about us when we are gone? Or, a scary thought, will we be remembered by others at all? I heard a story this week on This American Life podcast, and it talked about uh, a young man named Mark. 
this young man, um, he uh, was uh, a diabetic and uh, decided one night to, to go out and have a party and did all the things that people do at parties at times. And uh, at the end of the night, he uh, had some sort of attack that left him in a coma. So his friends took him to the hospital uh, and all the doctors said uh, he's in a coma, doesn't look like he's going to come out of this coma, and so we should really sort of pull the plug and, and not try to sustain his life anymore. Well, many of his friends uh, were obviously concerned about him being in a coma and uh, were waiting to hear the word of his passing. And so eventually, at some point, they got a message that Mark had actually passed away. And so what his friends did is they took to Facebook. They took to his Facebook page and they started writing tributes to Mark. And for weeks on end, they wrote tributes of of things remembered, of things they admired in Mark, of moments that they cherished about their friendship with him. And then all of a sudden, four weeks later, all of a sudden, someone posted on Mark's Facebook page and said, hi, it's Mark, I'm actually still here. And what they all realized is that Mark, they hadn't pulled the plug, as it were, um, and that Mark actually woke up from his coma. And Mark tells a story about one night after he'd been discharged from the hospital, uh, getting onto his computer and logging into Facebook and spending hours upon hours reading tributes about his life, about moments that he thought were inconsequential that impacted other people in deep ways. He had this sort of George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life moment where he realized that he will be remembered and what people will remember him for. You see, the criminal hanging near Jesus was face to face with his own mortality. He was face to face with his own death and that appending death had sharpened his perspective on his life. But he wasn't just concerned with how he would be remembered, but he was concerned with who would remember him. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus beautifully answers him saying, you won't be just remembered, but you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is such a powerful story, and we'd love to know more, wouldn't we? With any good story, we always want to know more. What was this criminal guilty of? What made him rush to Jesus' defense, even rebuking the other criminal who was mocking Jesus? But the most pressing question is this. What did he see in the eyes of Jesus that made him respond in the way that he did? Luke leaves us with a lot of silence. There's a lot of silence in here. And of course, as many uh, theologians have said, God God often resides in the silence of our lives. But I think as we look at this criminal, we see a few things that help us to see evidence of true faith in this criminal that hung beside Jesus. The first thing that we see is that he's willing to own his own guilt and condemnation before Jesus. We see this really in verses 40 and 41 because he says to the other criminal, he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. You see, what this criminal recognized is he recognized that he wasn't just a victim of his circumstances. 
He didn't sort of blame shift his culpability for being on the cross. He knew that he was guilty. He knew it, and he knew that justice was being served by his own execution. So he owns up to his guilt and his condemnation. But what he also recognizes is that Jesus is different. That Jesus was actually there despite being innocent. He says in verse 41, and we indeed justly were receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He sees in the eyes of Jesus a man who had done no wrong. His case was a case of justice being served, but in Jesus, he saw the gross injustice of this moment. I have to wonder if maybe, just maybe, he'd heard the remarkable words that came out of Jesus' mouth just before this moment. When Jesus, praying to God the Father, says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Maybe the criminal was thinking, who on earth, when suffering brutal injustice and mockery, pleads for the forgiveness of his accusers and his executioners? Indeed, this man must be who he claims to be. He must be the Messiah. And so because of all that, we see in the criminal this recognition that Jesus was a king. We see it in verse 42 in his request to Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your what? Your kingdom. You see, Jesus was a king with a kingdom. And this man wants to be remembered by the true king, the king of all kings. In short, what we see so powerfully in this man is we see the evidence of true faith. We see the most core elements of of a life that is changed. We see faith and we see repentance. We see him repenting of his sin, him taking true ownership of his sin. And of course, this idea of repentance has been on the mind of Baltimoreans this week as we've looked at local politics and as we've seen uh, uh, public repentances that take the form of 12-minute videos and we sort of wonder what is really going on with these official statements. We wonder, we hope it's genuine, but we often feel cynical about all these things. And we feel cynical because after all, true repentance is sometimes really hard to find in our world. But when we see it, it's powerful. And we see it in this criminal as he faces death and hangs beside his Savior. And so we see repentance, but we also see faith in this criminal because only faith has eyes to see Jesus as he truly is. Only faith despairs of its own righteousness and pleads for Jesus to save him. You see, not only do we see evidence of true faith, but we see how true faith is rewarded. It looks like faith and repentance, but we see what is the end result of what faith is, and that is paradise with Jesus, the very thing that this criminal gets to experience. In the darkest moments of his life, he has been redeemed. In a span of just seconds, moments, he is transferred from spiritual death 
to spiritual life. All the the physical and emotional and spiritual pain that had contributed to this man's crucifixion was now about to be gone forever. He was going to spend eternity with his Savior in paradise. That Messiah, that Savior, promises to him in this brutal moment a life, an eternal life in paradise. I think as we come to this passage, we have to come to terms with something that is all over the Gospels, and that is that Jesus is a remarkably polarizing person. Jesus knew this about his message. He knew this about his life. He talks about it all throughout the Gospels, and what he is also open about is that he is polarizing, and because of that, there really is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Most oppose him, some follow him. And that's why C.S. Lewis said that you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. You see, friends, all of us make, must make our choice. But my prayer for all of us this morning as we look at the crucifixion, as Jesus' final words throughout this Lenten season, my prayer is that all of us would look by faith into the eyes of Jesus and that as we do, we would see the very thing that the criminal saw, that with the eyes of faith, you and I might see either f- for the first time or be reminded for the millionth time that in the eyes of Jesus, we find a Savior who offers to us paradise. After all, as one theologian remarked, the only remembering that matters, the only remembering that matters is to be remembered by Jesus. Let's pray.